In this interview, we speak with Arizona State University Law School Dean Doug Sylvester and Assistant Dean Ray English on the legal profession in 2021 and beyond. We cover the current state of law schools and the legal sector, some of ASU Law's remarkable innovations that have propelled them to be ranked as the youngest law school in the top 25 in the nation, their leadership insights, and perspectives on legal careers, including those within the military, as Assistant Dean English is a former Air Force Judge Advocate. Here are a few clips from today's interview. One of the great things about I think about legal education is it actually is an education in leadership in a lot of ways. The JV opens the door for opportunities that might not otherwise have been open. Arizona has decided to create a whole new area called limited licensed practitioners where you're not a JD, you're not an attorney, but you are now able to practice law in specific areas and we think we're gonna be a huge provider. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This helps us to grow and outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, I am very excited for today's interview. We're going to uh, step outside the Department of Defense with this interview and speak with Arizona State University Law School Dean Doug Sylvester and Assistant Dean Ray English. And they're here to speak with us on a very interesting topic which we've titled The Legal Profession in 2021 and Beyond, to include the current state of law schools, the legal sector, and frankly, their perspectives on legal careers to include within the military. I'd also like to send out a special thanks to Major Rodney Glassman, an Air Force JAG reservist who lives in the Phoenix metropolitan area and helped to coordinate this interview, along with a few upcoming interviews. Thank you, Major Glassman. Dean Sylvester and Assistant Dean English, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to come on the show today. It's absolutely uh, my pleasure to be here, Rick. Thank you for having me. This is uh, Dean Sylvester, but please call me Doug for the remainder of the interview if you can. And it's my pleasure as well, uh, Rick, and this is uh, Ray English. You can call me Ray. <laughs> well, thank you both, sirs. I appreciate it. Um, Doug and Ray, I, I will do that. Dean Doug Sylvester is the eighth dean of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University in Phoenix. Under his leadership, ASU Law has reached historic heights where they now rank in the top 25 in the nation among all law schools and seventh among public law schools. And this is quite remarkable considering that they've moved up about 24 spots over the last decade or so. From 2012 to 2020, the law school placed in the top 25 for employment. They've hired nearly 60 faculty members, and they've raised approximately $80 million under Dean Sylvester's tutelage, more than twice the amount raised in the previous 45 years combined. In addition to Dean Sylvester's duties as dean, he has published, taught, and lectured on a multitude of, of issues, including intellectual property law and commercialization international law, emerging technologies, and privacy. Prior to joining uh, ASU, Dean Sylvester was a Bigelow Fellow and a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago and Northwestern University, an attorney in the Global E-Commerce Practice Group at Baker & McKenzie in Chicago, 
and a law clerk for the U.S. District Judge C. Clyde Atkins in Florida. Our other guest, Assistant Dean Ray English, is the Assistant Dean Office of Career and Employment Services, where he focuses on employment and externships for the students. Prior to joining ASU Law School, Assistant Dean English served as the Associate Director of Career Services at Georgia State University College of Law. And to relevance to our military listeners, he attended Wentworth Military Junior College, where he was recognized as a distinguished military graduate and received a commission in the U.S. Army Reserve. We had some time to chat a little bit before this interview about some of the assignments he had, which he may get into here on, on the show, where he has served for six years as a staff judge advocate in the U.S. Air Force. Gentlemen, again, thank you for coming on the show today. I'd like to just start off um, kind of very broadly, if we could, with, with, with Doug, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, to just maybe talk a little bit more about your current position and what you're focusing on right now. Well, let me just start again by thanking you, Rick, for having us on uh, this podcast. Uh, we are obviously always happy to talk about the law school. Thank you for reading the bio that I clearly wrote myself as well, because it clearly uh, portrays me more favorably than anybody else would say. But it has been uh, a fantastic ride being dean of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Uh, I have been dean now for about 10 years and am, unless killed by a truck in the next 24 hours, will be the longest serving dean in the history of the law school uh, within the next few weeks. And it has been uh, an unbelievable experience this last 10 years. We have witnessed a huge drop off in applications uh, in 2011. We've had crises we've done with COVID, and it's because of people like English and our extraordinary staff and faculty that this law school has continued to reach for higher heights every single chance we can. As you mentioned, we just had our highest ranking ever as number 24 in the country. We are the youngest law school in the top 25, and we are doing this by consistently recruiting students from all over the world. I know we're a public law school, but about three quarters of our students are now from out of state or all over the world. Nine or 12 different countries this last class will we have many of the same. Uh, while other schools are struggling with applications, we've seen our applications grow from 1,400 just six years ago to we'll be at about 6,000 wow. this year. And we have reached higher median LSATs and GPAs every single year. Uh, we're starting to see our students because of Ray's extraordinary work, get more federal clerkships, more opportunities in large law firms. But as a public law school, we've never lost track of our absolute commitment to getting our students involved in public service. And so we are always one of the top law schools in the country for students entering into the military, entering into public service in district attorney's office, public defender's office, government uh, work, and in public interest work. So we really, you know, we just want to make sure that is what we do is focus on what students want. We still remember we're a public school committed to making the world around us a better place. And so getting our students into roles where they can make a difference is a big part of what I believe in. And it's one of the reasons I hired Ray to come and join the law school. You know, when you say that we've been top 20 for, for jobs, it's that was never true before Ray got here. So he deserves all the credit, uh, definitely more than I do. Well, sir, I can feel the energy, uh, incredible. Um story there and, and definitely stuff I want to dive into here on this this interview. Uh, and for Ray, um, if you could maybe for our listeners, let us know a little bit more about what you're currently up to. Gosh, I'm sure I'm up to what everybody else is up to is pandemic out, uh, fallout and dealing with the fallout from that. And we've actually survived it fairly well. 
at Arizona State, I'm being able to uh, maintain jobs. And, and for example, last summer, when his first hit, we were able to uh, help our students have summer opportunities because that went away a lot in a lot of places, but not here. We were able to generate over 90 opportunities for students to find experience and actually make a little money as well during the summer. And that's thanks to, to Doug's leadership and the school's willingness to support our students through those times. And now we're dealing with the uh, remote uh, aspect of recruitment, which has been a very interesting experience for all parties, is helping students figure out how to navigate this virtual world in terms of interviewing. Um, we've learned it can be done, and it can be done well, and, and we still haven't lost a step in doing that. So that's our biggest challenges, you know, pandemic, virtual, uh, teaching virtually, interviewing virtually, recruiting virtually, and we've done well so far. Well, Doug and Ray, one of the focuses for this, uh, this show is on leadership, law, and innovation. And I really can't think of, of greater leadership um, exemplified here with what's going on at ASU Law School. Could you maybe offer some just, I don't know, some thoughts, some, some points on how you've been able to do what you've done at ASU from a leadership standpoint? Let me chime in first before Doug chimes in. One of the things that, from a leadership perspective, that's been done well by Doug is he hired me, and he, <laughs> and he let right. me and he let me do my thing. I mean, oftentimes, you know, people bring people in and they want to tell you how to do your job, and he has not done that. I've done some creative things. I've been allowed to do some creative things that have worked out really well for the school. And I think that's the biggest leadership perspective. And as the military, we know this, you know, you, you get good people and you let them do their job, you know, and he has very well done that. And I think the school has benefited from allowing us to try some things, even if it doesn't work out, you know, sometimes it doesn't, but most times we've been fortunate enough to have these creative ideas work out to the benefit of our students. So I think that's a real example of leadership is being able to let your people do their job. And Doug, if you could, could maybe, where did you kind of start to learn some of your leadership philosophy or, or your leadership traits? So I, I sometimes think I'm going to write a book, you know, the, the non-confident leader. Uh, and I think there are some reasons for believing that can work. If you really are good at evaluating talent, and which I think I am good at, and bringing great people in, then I don't need to be the one saying, this is how we're going to move forward in this direction. I, I set, and Ray will agree with this, very high standards for what it is we're going to try and achieve. But then I, I really expect that my team's going to figure out the best way to get us there. And so I do spend a lot of time really making sure we have the right team around us. But where did I learn this? I have to say, it's you mentioned that I was at the e-commerce uh, global e-commerce practice group at Baker and McKenzie. Uh, and if you if you know history, I was there. And I'm old, but from 1991 until about 2002, that was the dot-com boom. And I was an academic prior to that, but I was really interested in becoming involved in the dot, you know, the e-commerce boom that was occurring all over the country. So I joined Baker McKenzie in Chicago and every one of our clients was essentially a small startup trying to break into this industry. And so you learned very early on that they had a much better idea of how to make their company succeed, how to come up with more innovative and important aspects of how to move their company forward. And my job was just to help give advice and say, here's where we need to go. And so you learn to let people take risks. And I think a lot of lawyers we're trained to never let people take risks. In fact, we're here to tell everyone, here's the risks you didn't think of, so don't do them. Because of my training, I think, in those uh, two years or so, really, that's what we learned, is that if these companies didn't take risks, they didn't exist. And so our job was to help them evaluate risks, tell them where there were dangers, but then help support 
what they thought was the right answer. And when mistakes were made, work really hard, really quickly to move on to the next good idea and help that company move forward. So I think that's where I learned it. And I've really sort of uh, ran my whole career as associate dean and then as dean, letting people around me take the risks they think they need to take to succeed. And then I just tell them this is what success is going to look like. And Doug, obviously, we have a lot of listeners that are within the military, within the government, right? And, uh, you know, some people may say, obviously, taking risk in the private sector uh, is different than in, in, in the public sector. But look what you've done here in, in a public institution, right? Like ASU Law School. Could you offer any insights to that from, you know, the private versus the public sector and how that works? Obviously, I'm a public employee and we are a public law school. And part of what we always have to figure out is if we're taking risks, we still have the welfare of the institution and the trust of our community as something we have to uphold even more than any risks. So when I say risks, I don't mean that we're betting the entire fortune of the law school on black in Vegas, although, no, we don't do that. Uh, what I'm talking about is, I'll give a great example. We have been extraordinarily successful in increasing applications and enrollments at the law school. So I'll give a couple other you know, important things. We're the third public law school in the country to become completely self-sufficient. And we did it without raising tuition. So we have not raised tuition at the law school since I have been dean. Tuition has gone up because of some other fees, but it's gone up less than 5% over 10 years for our in-resident students. So we're not raising tuition. How are we going to become self-sufficient? Well, the first answer was when every other law school was getting very small and very expensive, we decided we had options for our students to get jobs. We had ability to recruit, but we were going to have to change how we did admissions. Now, people who've gone to law school, you remember, you'd apply to law school sometime around December. Then if you're lucky, someone will say, you're welcome. I'm admitting you sometime around May. We don't do that. We start in August. We are probably the first law school in the country to take accept, uh, uh, applications. You get an answer from us in two weeks. You get a scholarship answer the same day that we admit you or reject you. Then you don't get a scholarship offer. Because our idea is, is that if we want you, we don't want to wait for the next set of applications. There's a ton of amazing lawyers out there. So we want you to come in. That's a risk because nobody had ever done it before. It looked different than other law schools. And so that's the kind of risk I'm talking about is blowing up traditions, saying just because this is the way it's been done doesn't mean that's how we need to do it going forward. We needed to grow. What we were doing wasn't working. We blew it up, tried something different than anybody else, and it worked. Now there's a lot of people doing admissions the way we do. And uh, I think I'm proud of that part of it. But that's what I mean by risks. And when they don't work out, then you have to unravel them quickly. You have to be willing to admit defeat. You have to be willing to fix the problems and move forward and try something new. That's the kind of risks I'm talking about. And obviously, right now in the Department of Defense and the Air Force, one of the mantras is innovation, right? That we need to innovate. Ray, might you be able to talk a little bit about some of the innovation that's going on at ASU and kind of what you're working on um, from that standpoint? Oh, wow. Uh, thanks for asking that question because, again, We've done some things that have, that haven't been done before. For example, uh, one of the things when I first arrived here is no one has job fairs for recent graduates. You know, it's amazing. You know, once uh, students graduate from law school, it seemed as if the school only wanted to know whether they whether they were employed or not. You know, so they could report to the ABA. You know, we started a 
a job fair for recent graduates right after the bar results came out. It was a great success, and, and many students or graduates appreciated that. Uh, one change that's happened in 2016 is paid externships. Up until 2016, a law student could not get credit for an externship and get paid at the same time. The ABA prohibited you know, that practice. Well, in June of 2016, they changed that rule. You fast forward to 2021, and still a majority of law schools still do not allow paid externships. Yeah, and but we have expanded that program, and and in fact, you know, 100% of the students who participate in a paid externship here at our law school are employed within 10 months of graduation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about 50, 60, 70 students per year. Yeah, and again. That was a, something that nobody had done and no one had even took the risk and we did and we've been able to maintain the integrity of our experiential learning opportunity as well as enhance our students ability to get employment post-graduation and make a little money while they're doing it so they really have appreciated that uh some other can things I there, Ray? can i just i just yeah. want to i want to really highlight that particular innovation because that there are other law schools that have blown up over this particular idea they've had huge fights Ray and I and others, well, this is the easiest thing ever. So we have students who can reduce debt, get paid, get experience, and Ray has made sure that they all end up with employment out of these experiences. The fact that other law schools won't do this to me is because they have this attitude that it's just not the way it's been done in the past. And I think my reaction, and I know Ray's the same, is when someone says to us, but that's not the way we do it, I immediately go, well, that's wrong. Then. Let's figure mm-hmm. out the way it should be done. And Ray is a great example and that great example, Rick. Yeah, so that's, those are innovative things that we, we've done and thought through among a number of things to enhance our students' abilities to be employed post-graduation. Because at the end of the day, that's the goal. You come to law school, and ultimately three years later, you want a job and hopefully one you like. So if I can ask this question for, for both of you gentlemen, uh, what is the current state of law schools and the legal profession here in 2021 and, and maybe the foreseeable future? Well, I'll start, but then I, I think Ray's going to answer most of this question. I, I, again, I think we are seeing a bit of a downturn in the economy because of COVID over the last year and a half. Applications are up. I think we're up more than most. So law schools, I think, are overall feeling healthier than they were five, six years ago. But I know there's a lot of concerns about employment. And, and one of the things for people to understand about Arizona State is we are the only law school in a city of five million. And so that is an advantage that students who come to ASU have. And that's an advantage I, I'm gonna say that we we take advantage of every single chance we can to explain to them, to reach out to employers, to get them great students. And I'll hand it off to Ray to talk more about where the legal profession is. One of the things that's happening in, in the legal profession, first of all, is the whole idea of diversity. You know, with everything that happened last year, there's a real big look at what can we do and a serious consideration of what can we do uh, to and diverse the legal profession. And so a lot of employers, law firms, corporations, they're all thinking about this problem. And it's not an easy fix. It's a long-term uh, a solution that has to be implemented. And so that's the biggest thing. So we're getting a lot of interest around that particular uh, area. Another area is what I like to call the uh, professionalism of JD Advantage. You know, 10 years ago, if you got this JD Advantage, the job that you get that's non-traditional, you know, it's not a law firm. And it was categorized as JD Advantage. And oftentimes, maybe 10 years ago, people thought, well, you did that if you couldn't get a traditional law job. You know, that was kind of the mindset. That's totally different now. It is a, a legitimate 
career path for students, you know, to do something that's not traditionally in a law firm. So what we're seeing is a real big expansion of JDs being applicable and being hired to do a lot of different things. Compliance come to, comes to mind. And compliance is a broad umbrella. You have banking, you got educational, you all kind of compliance just simply means making sure your processes are, you know, meet the rules. And that's a big area that is expanding. And you're starting to see folks recognize you know, a lawyer or a legally trained person can really do this job really, really well. And so, and now it's a, becoming more and more an accepted career path. The other thing I think is going to be impacted is this whole virtual work. Mm-hmm. One of the silver linings, depending how you look at it, is the realization of how much they can do from home. You know, one of the things I've heard prior to COVID and the pandemic is, we don't like folks working from home. We don't trust them. We don't, we, we're not going to do that. And then now they were forced to do it and have been doing it for over a year or so. You know, this is really, really a good opportunity. We can actually do some things with working virtually and we can actually do it effectively. So I think that's what we're going to see is a lot of folks aren't bringing their folks back into the office. You know, they're going to go permanently in a virtual environment. And I think we're going to see a lot of that happening and a lot of firms and legal folks looking at, well, how can we make it work and will it work for us? And finally, the practice areas that students and graduates can do is just wide open. You know, and I think as people are starting to realize that the skill sets that you learn over three years of law school, i.e. how to identify problems, how to solve problems, you know, how to communicate effectively in solving those problems are skills that are transferable, you know, to other areas. Now, we've always known, you know, you have JDs that are politicians and JDs that do different things, but now we're seeing JDs in a plethora of different areas. Hmm. And that's the beauty of it. The JD opens the door for opportunities that might not otherwise have been open. I like to say is, most people, when you walk into a room and you say you're a lawyer, they assume you're smart. The <laughs> rebuttable presumption is you must be intelligent. Now, you, you and I both know that's not always the case. <laughs> but if you walk into a room and you say you're a lawyer, you know, the, the, the presumption is you must be smart in that regard. And that kind of translates into all the other things that, they're, that they may be doing that you can do with your JD. So it would probably be fair to say that a JD today is just as a, is valuable, if not more valuable than it was maybe even 5, 10, 15 years ago? Absolutely, because you can now, it's, be, it's recognized as, as a benefit to a multitude of different areas. And if I could also follow up um, with you, uh, Ray, on some of the p- uh, points you made here, specifically with your background, right? we have a lot of uh, military listeners uh, to this show, and you, um, you've taken kind of a unique career path where you had six years on active duty in the Air Force, and then you uh, you moved into academia and all the different things you've kind of done there. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that and, and also that, that transition um, piece, right, where you came from active duty, um, you, you got off of active duty, as we do have a lot of people that come on active duty and then they go into the reserves or maybe they're on reserves and then they come on active duty and just kind of curious to see what your thoughts are on all that. Let me first by really sharing my total background and as far as the military, I was in Civil Air Patrol in high school. If you know it, most people know what that is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I went to a military junior college. I got commissioned at 19 as a second lieutenant. I spent 10 years in the Army Reserves yeah, as an armor officer. You know, I was a company commander you know, in an armor tank uh, company. And then I went to law school You know, <laughs> and then went active duty uh, in the uh, Air Force. And so I've been... For a long time, most of my life had been involved in some shape or form 
with the military. So when I just chose to leave the Air Force, you know, I did have concerns about the transition. You know, um, I wanted to teach law school. Yeah, I had two goals leaving law school or leaving the military. I either wanted to teach law school or I wanted to be a U.S. assistant attorney. And I can tell you, I got offers for both. You know, so I got an offer to be a U.S. attorney. You know, I got an offer to teach. Obviously, I chose the teaching route. Uh, and that, so having a military career is really appreciated by those who are not in the military. Even when I did it 20 years ago, you know, now it's really, really recognized as a training ground and, and providing skill sets that they may not find anywhere else. So this transition is very simple. Now, one thing I didn't do because my wife would not let me do it was going to reserves. Now, because I wasn't married to my wife when I was in the military is after I got married, after I got out. And, and I, that's a regret. You know, because all I needed was like, you know, eight years in the reserves, you know, to get to retirement, you know, but that's another story. But you can continue. And I recommend that if you do, you can if you go in, you spend four or five, six years, you get out and go into reserves, you know, and you get the retirement and still do other things, you know, uh, as well as you know, practice law in the military environment. And how do you think the, the military has set you up for success into your current career? Over my whole military, all my leadership training, all my training as far as organizational training, all that stuff has played into uh, being able to be successful outside the military. One of the things I found when I left the military is that the work habit, the work ethic, that the ability to organize and problem solve is not necessarily as you know as abundant as you may think in the private private world. You know, saying that you know they most people. You have difficulty unless you have unless you've received training to really problem solve one to identify the problem and two to really come up with a solution that makes sense. And so my military experience really helped me in terms of managing, leading people. We talked about it before the before the uh, we we did start the podcast mm-hmm. about how many people who get into leadership positions and never have any experience or training about leadership and management. With it, and sometimes they don't know the difference between leadership and management. And you and I both know that's that's two different things, you know. Yep. But people sometimes lump them together as the same thing, and they're not the same thing. And so that training bowled me well. Uh, do you guys remember Quality Air Force many years ago? <laughs> yeah, way back when. You know, what is really I went through that, and I used those things, those things I learned through that process, even today. You know, in terms of uh, what I do now. And, and Doug, just curious to hear your thoughts, kind of your holistic perspective on folks that you've either worked with in the military or maybe students that are considering going into the military. Just kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, we work with, so first of all, we're incredibly open law school to, to veterans, uh, and we have a number of policies, even for people in active service. So uh, obviously, we are one of the flag schools, and so you have the opportunity to get a full ride to come to law school. We've actually just started a new program uh, that's called Advanced Scholars, and this is for people who we think have leadership training uh, and have overcome adversity in their lives. And we've just uh, can't tell you the name because he hasn't enrolled, but keep an eye out for some stories about some extraordinary students that are going to come to ASU and become some of our inaugural Advanced Scholars. And so one of the things that we love about people with leadership training is, one, they bring things to the law school I clearly don't have, uh, is the ability to really sort of lead and inspire people. One of the great things about I think about legal education is it actually is an education in leadership in a lot of ways. It isn't much about management. That's more of the MBA side of things. It is about 
talking to people about how they can advance their lives, inspiring people to think about how they can make a difference. That's what legal education is about. So you can come into law school and maybe you don't have that training. You're going to be surrounded by people who do. And then you're going to have an education that tries to teach you how to become a leader in helping other people think about how to make their communities and their lives better. And I, that's part of what I've always loved about legal education and about being a lawyer. So I think those are just some of the lessons I've learned. I, I learned from Ray all the time about, you know, I don't know how to talk less, smile more, things like that. <laughs> uh, idea really helpful. So one of the things to really understand about the future of law schools is, and one of the ways I think we've most innovated is we've talked a lot about the JD, because I know a lot of the audience here are mm. attorneys. But there's been a huge revolution in legal education to train non-lawyers. Uh, so we train, a, we, we now have a, a population of non-lawyers through master's degrees in master's of legal studies for compliance, healthcare, sports law and business, and on and on and on. And we now have more students in that program than we do JDs. Wow. And part of this is learning that the professions out in the world need people who are not just lawyers or aren't necessarily lawyers, but truly understand the legal aspects of their professions. And we were probably the first, I think, law school in the country to really recognize how much the world was changing and that an understanding of law was important for almost any profession. And so our program is now uh, about 15 years old. It's become quite large in the last eight to 10 years. I think we might be the largest in the country. We are. And it, it's just a fantastic program. And so once again, it's about jobs. It's about the professions, but it's also about training people in an area of law and a way of thinking that we think makes them leaders in their professions. It's, it's an amazing opportunity for us to really expand legal education beyond people who just want to be attorneys. And so it's something we're really proud of as well. And Doug, was that part of your initial vision or was this something that the, the, the private sector or public sector was kind of driving this where they're coming to law schools looking for these types of folks? I think we've already established that I'm not, you know, I'm not the person with the ideas. I'm with the, <laughs> here's the thing done. And uh, what I can tell you about this is I, I became dean in 2011. And for those of you who may remember uh, that was when there was a ton of bad press about law schools and law school applications dropped off about 50%. And at that time, we also really fell off a cliff. And the JD program went from about 230 students down to about 130 in a very short amount of time. And yet we were supposed to become an economically self-sufficient institution and I didn't want to raise tuition. So we started to hear, you know, and, and I taught at business schools as well. And so I was always a fan of the MBA and I thought, you know, here's this degree we have that we're not using. I wonder if we could grow it. And we actually started with sports law and business. And it's interesting. It's because another law school was cutting their program. And we thought this is a real opportunity for us. So we hired those people, started that program at the law school. And then to your second point, immediately started hearing from our business communities. We want more people like this. And so from there, we started really investing in those kinds of programs, and we are really seeing them grow and grow and grow. And uh, to the point where I don't know if you've seen in Arizona now, Arizona has decided to create a whole new area called limited license practitioners, where you're not a JD, you're not an attorney, but you are now able to practice law in specific areas. And we think we're going to be a huge provider 
of education for those individuals as well. Wow. What are some of those areas? So it's family law. Ray, do you know them better than I do? Probably not. Family law, um, making special court appearances, uh, they'll be allowed to do that in certain you know, uh, avenues. And just they're still working it out. The details haven't totally come out. But in those areas where people sometimes can't afford uh, legal representation, and this is a less uh, expensive route. And so it really is tied to access to justice uh, for people. Fascinating. I was not aware of that. Washington State did it first, but uh, there, there's some interesting questions about how they did it. There was a very, very high level of education required in a very small number of areas they could work. Arizona is taking a broader view of almost like a mini bar exam with smaller amounts of education and more areas you can work in. So I think uh, Arizona's approach to this, I think, is going to be quite interesting to see where it goes. The other real change that Arizona just made is allowing non-lawyers to have ownership stakes in law firms. So we might see a number of different models for law firms that will have some lawyers, some limited licensed practitioners, and then ownership uh, in the non-legal world. So it's going to be a really interesting set of years coming up. And this is clearly the law school that's ready, I think, to take on those kinds of challenges. So we're excited. And just chiming in on that, that blend, you know, what he means is you may see accountants and lawyers have one practice. Right, right now, you can't do that. You know, right. you, they have to be separate entities. And now they're allowing non-lawyers to share fees and create a joint organization. And what is driving this change? Ray hit it. It's access to justice. It's, yep. uh, I used to, back in 2011 and 12, I, I gave speeches all over uh, the country at different law firms talking about how the world had really changed, that one of the problems of access to justice was back in the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s, lawyers were on the first floor, right? You would walk around the street and there was a lawyer. You would be able to meet them in all sorts of different places. And then law moved up to the 50th floor. And everybody basically said, if I'm a, there's only two ways to know lawyers. It's the billboards, which scare me. And then people I'm never allowed to meet. And so what I believe really strongly is that law schools really need to play a real role in creating opportunities for people to find lawyers and to find ways to see that lawyers can help them advance their lives. And so one of the major issues here is how can we provide legal representation for people in ways that they need, but that are not going to be so expensive that they won't be able to access them? So the law school is going to play a huge role in helping people connect to those kinds of people and then obviously help educating people so they can become uh, licensed practitioners and in these blended law firms. Great points. And I've actually heard that through some of our other guests uh, on previous episodes about this access to justice, which we had one guest that was talking about um, innovation through artificial intelligence and other types of things because lawyers were too expensive. Uh, so yeah. um, fascinating uh, there. I think some of the points you also mentioned, both Doug and Ray mentioned uh, here, is a natural segue kind of into where do you see, if you can, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but if you did, uh, where do you kind of see the legal profession going over the next five years? Why don't you take that, Ray? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> wow. One thing that the that COVID has brought about, as well as the, the, the instance of 2020, is the legal profession is taking a hard look, you know, at what we are and what we're supposed to be. And so I think over the next five years, you're going to see a lot of effort and monies put into 
creating equality in terms of access to justice, but also reevaluating who makes a good lawyer. You know, what skill sets are required to be a good lawyer? You know, what things traditionally it's good grades, law review, you know, that's going to change. You know, I think they're starting to realize that, you know, even the bar exam is reevaluating the bar exam. The LSAT right. is reevaluating the LSAT. Are those good tools to represent and determine who can be a successful lawyer? So as the legal profession takes a hard look of how we define ourselves, we're going to see corely some core values change in terms of making sure that the profession is open to everybody and that we aren't, you know, randling or just leaving people out without access to justice or even access to education in that regard. On the practice area, I think I've touched on this a lot. And what I'm seeing is this openness on this recognition that being legally trained makes you capable to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why you see a lot of the, you know, the masters of legal studies programs, the uh, level of non-attorney but training education with legal, a person who's not a, a lawyer, not a paralegal, but somewhere, you know, where they can actually represent clients and do things for clients, because we are a nation, as we've heard over and over again, rule of law, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be, you know, what we're about, but yet we have a lot of people who don't understand it and don't have access to it, and, and that's going to change over time. From a, from a corporate perspective, you know, you're seeing uh, law firms get a little bit bigger, you're seeing them diversify, you know, and we're all wondering where this is all going to lead in terms of the diversity requirements that corporate clients are asking for, you know, and everyone trying to, uh, you know, meet those demands. And quite frankly, they're not enough diverse lawyers. And so I hope to see over the next five years more commitment to pipeline programming and being able to encourage more diverse students to actually go to law school, you know, and making sure that they have the skill sets to actually succeed in law school, you know, at least on those objective criteria that we judged them to have succeeded by. So I think it's going to be a lot of change over the next five years. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. I know we're getting close to time here. Just two more questions that I had that I usually ask all our guests, um, which would be, do you have any recommended references where listeners could learn about anything that we've talked about today um, in, in more detail? The ABA uh, puts out a number of different things about the future of legal education, the future of the legal profession. Um, so there's certainly a fair amount of work there. On some of the emerging technologies you've mentioned, things like artificial intelligence and uh, blockchain, you know, we have a fantastic center for law, science, and innovation uh, here at ASU. If you go to our website and you go to that center, you'll find tons of information about how those areas are really going to impact uh, the legal profession going forward. From uh, Things like this podcast are fantastic, obviously, to just learn more about where legal education is going, what law schools are doing. And then if there's people thinking of going to law school, the right answer is feel free to email me. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you anything you want to know. I didn't know any lawyers, honestly, growing up. And so it's been a wonderful thing to be able to give back. I tell everybody when we admit them, you know, just email me anytime and I'll give you answers, even if you tell me you're not coming to ASU. Because I just think that the more advice people have, the more they're able to select the right law school for them, the right profession for them, and then be able to move their careers forward, our profession's gonna be better. I think the one thing Ray didn't talk about that I think is worth highlighting is there's a negative perception about the legal profession. And one of the statistics that's constantly thrown out is that people quit at about year 10. 
that 50% of people who have been admitted to the bar are no longer practicing attorneys 10 years out. And there's this perception that they're all now homeless and no longer, no, they've all moved into other jobs. They're all doing the kinds of things that Ray was talking about. Not all, a huge majority, because at some point they've proven that they can do so many things with that kind of training. And our master's of legal studies is really, I mean, I'm really proud that we have this program because everybody's getting great jobs and they're learning the same skills that attorneys have without all of the three years of, of training and then all of the things that come with it. They get to do the jobs they love, but they understand law, they understand legal reasoning, and we think it's a fantastic degree. So I think that's going to be a big part of where the legal profession is going as well as a blending of different people, different backgrounds uh, to really give a better practice to all of their clients. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add – if someone is really interested in law school, discoverlaw.org. You know, discoverlaw.org is a, a resource that will have everything you want to know and need to know about applying to law school, the LSAT, how to pick the right law school, the LSAT exam itself. So th that's a great resource for someone who's thinking about attending law. It'll create questions. It'll answer questions. It'll remind you of questions you should be thinking about, and, and it'll link you to other resources. So that's one place I recommend people to go to, and that's discoverlaw.org. And for our listeners, once we get our, our new website up and running, we will have all this in the show notes. So um, my last question is, is there any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners on either what we discussed today or anything else um, maybe that we didn't get a chance to discuss? Why don't you go first, Ray? I would just say to the military folks who are thinking about law school, it is a great segue. It's a great option um, to do. And those who are in law school, you know, going to a JAG, uh, whether it's Air Force or Army, Navy, Marine Corps, I don't know. But you know, for the rest of the – it's a great way to see the world. It's a great way to get a lot of exposure to you know, the law, different areas of practice of law. It's really a great opportunity to figure out what you want to do, and it's a great experience. So that would be my last thought. Yeah, mine would be the legal profession is a great career. And uh, I'm a great example of, you know, I'm a huge boxing fan and, and, and every champion always says at some point, you know, boxing saved my life. Well, law school saved my life in many ways. It really did. It inspired me uh, in what I wanted to do. And so a legal profession is great. People don't think it, but we need more lawyers in the United States. We absolutely do. But we need are lawyers who really want to make their community better. Um, that doesn't mean you can't do well for your family, but be thinking about how you can use that incredible privilege that you have of being an attorney or having legal training and use it not only to advance your family, but how you can move your community forward and make it better. And then pick a law school, I don't know, like ASU, that really helps you get that experience and then helps you inspire your career to make your community a better place. Well, Doug and Ray, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I've learned a lot um, just in this short amount of time, and I know we've just scratched the surface on all these different topics, but thank you uh, again for coming on and shedding some of your, your insights, tips, and wisdom to, to all our listeners. My well, pleasure. You, yeah, thank you, Rick, and uh, have us back anytime to talk about any of these things or anything else. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. That concludes our interview with ASU Law School Dean Doug Sylvester and Assistant Dean Ray English. Here are my three takeaways from the interview. Number one, leadership is about risk management, not risk avoidance. Dean Sylvester said he developed some of his foundational leadership principles as a corporate lawyer at Baker McKenzie for startups during the dot-com birth in the 1990s. He learned quickly that in order for his clients to succeed, 
and thrive, he needed to assess risk, offer his legal counsel on the management of that risk, but not avoid risk. And he carried that leadership style into his current position as ASU Law School Dean, which has proven to be very successful. Further, as Dean Sylvester said, his definition of risk does not mean he's betting the entire fortune of the law school on black like a roulette game. Rather, risk means making calculated decisions based on all the facts and circumstances to achieve your goals while trying to mitigate failure. And if the risk doesn't pan out, admit defeat, unravel your mistakes quickly, and move forward with the next best solution. But don't dwell on the mistake, rather learn from it. That is the path of innovation. It is a process. Number two, innovation cannot just be a buzzword. The term innovation has been used readily within the DOD and private sector for years. However, because of its use, or overuse at times, the term innovation can sometimes be perceived in a negative connotation, such as a euphemism for excessive novelty without meaningful impact. Consider not letting this misuse of the term water down its true meaning. Rather, we should look to apply the term innovation carefully and with meaningful impact. Dean Sylvester and Assistant Dean English offered multiple examples of innovations at ASU Law over the last number of years. For example, ASU Law revolutionized their application process from what every other law school was doing at the time. ASU Law started accepting applications in August and provided notification to applicants within about two weeks, along with any scholarship offers. This was simply not being done based on tradition. But as Dean Sylvester said, they weren't afraid to quote-unquote blow up tradition if tradition wasn't working anymore. Today, ASU Law's innovative application process has been benchmarked as a new industry standard in law school admissions, and new standards can rarely be achieved without taking calculated risks. And my third point, the legal profession is undergoing significant change. The path for greater quote-unquote access to justice, as discussed by both our guests, is fully underway. As Dean Sylvester stated, for many years, there was often only two paths for a lawyer for the average citizen, either through a lawyer's billboard propped up along highways and interstates, or on the 50th floor in a corporate firm high-rise. And this simply doesn't work for the average citizen on a multitude of legal needs. So many law schools, state legislatures, and bar associations have begun to take action. For example, as discussed, Arizona is now implementing limited licensed legal practitioners called legal paraprofessionals, or LPs, in areas such as administrative law, family law, and other areas. Arizona is also allowing non-lawyer ownership in law firms. The policy behind both these initiatives, according to an article from the ABA citing Arizona Supreme Court Justice Robert Brutinell, is to improve access to justice and encourage innovation in the delivery of legal services. Other changes in the legal profession include permanent teleworking, greater diversity, to reevaluating entrance exams like the LSAT and even the bar exam, to the interplay of artificial intelligence and the law. And the COVID pandemic has pushed many of these issues to the forefront of discussion and debate. So how might these changes apply to the practice of law in the military? While it's safe to say military legal professionals are not immune to changes within the legal industry, 
Rather, military legal professionals should be tracking these changes and evaluating our own legal practice to improve and innovate our services. Are we doing things because that's just the way they've been done before? Are we willing to genuinely evaluate our own legal services and take those calculated risks to improve them? Thank you for listening to another episode. If you like this episode, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and consider subscribing to the show. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Four. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.